The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Kate Andrews and Katie Balls. Now it's Prime Minister's questions today, but uh, for the second time, Richard Sennett was away and so it was Oliver Dowden who stepped up to face off against Andrew Rayner. And alongside both of their portfolios is the role of Cabinet Office and shadowing that responsibility. So obviously, given the Cabinet Office has been in the news, what came up? Covid inquiry. Katie, tell us about the exchange today. I think what was interesting is it didn't massively move the position on, but we had Oliver Dowden, I think, giving a bit more detail on the rationale behind the government's decision to launch a judicial review against its own inquiry, <laughs> yeah. um, which I think all, almost universally has been criticised. Um, there have been a few Tory MPs defending the government, but there's also been plenty who saying it makes the government look secretive, it's a bad look, look at what families of the bereaved are saying um, in response to this. And given there's some scepticism, the judicial review is going to be successful, is it really worth the fight? And I think that's a sense that's both in the Tory party and parts of government. But Oliver Dowden was making the lonely view, perhaps, the idea of giving all messages over a hue on the witnesses called, including those that are irrelevant or not directly re- related to COVID, mm. um, would mean that all of a sudden you're handing over quite intimate messages about family matters, personal matters, it could be health matters, and suggesting that that's an unfair thing to have to ask officials and I think also the implication ministers to do. Now, it casts, I think, focus back to the COVID inquiry, which obviously kickstarted yesterday on Tuesday, the official launch. And I think there is probably a, a growing concern in government about the COVID inquiry, not because I think, as some people say, that there is some smoking gun Rishi Sunak is trying to hide. And if there is a WhatsApp message that emerges, which perhaps, as some people have been saying, shows that Rishi Sunak was conspiring against Boris Johnson, I will happily take that back and that will suggest for the hiding it. But but I think but I think the, the general feeling is more just a concern that this is going to go on for a very long time, that it is going to be uh, lots of political point scoring and it's going to be quite painful, but perhaps, but perhaps also not be so effective in terms of the lessons that would be most helpful to learn. And is there some also concern, Katie, within government about you know, the chairwoman herself, Baroness Hallett, who obviously hugely respected, you know, woman who led the 7-7 inquiry, forced MO5 to hand over files, etc. But there's perhaps a sense that she's the person going to be handling this and there might be a difference in how she interprets this inquiry from how the political optics and reality are going to pan out. Yeah, it's something I write about in The Spectator this week in the politics column, um, effectively how there is a frustration in Downing Street and across parts of government at the inquiry in its current form, which is partly that it's so broad, hence why it's going to go on until 2026, that also you have uh, Judge Hallett, who is very respected, but I think uh, there are some who will say, well, look, for example, the 7-7 inquiry. It's quite clear this is a judge uh, who is very transparent about the information. Now, listeners may be saying, well, it's great if it's transparent. And I don't think that's wrong. I just think the point is, from the government perspective... Is this going how they wanted to? Because you go back to uh, the advice John McTernan put out, which was rule number one, if you want to have a public inquiry, don't. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do, uh, effectively, don't give it powers 
don't make it independent, know the conclusion you want, set the remit accordingly and appoint a chair who knows the brief as in all those things previously. And that is not what this inquiry resembles. So therefore, you have an inquiry where it's already quite tense between the two sides. And I think it's only going to get more so as more uh, hearings take place, as more evidence comes out, and as it just keeps running on for such a long time. Kate, do you think there's a danger, of course, that in all of this we do lose sight of the original aims of this inquiry? Absolutely. And, you know, you can have sympathy with Oliver Dowden's comments today. Um, as Katie says, he's he's a lone voice in this, but the idea is that we could get so easily sidetracked by the personal stories behind these people. And you can be sympathetic to that, right? Because, you know, people were locked up in their homes for such a long period of time. If there is a gotcha moment in any capacity, a lot of people want to have that moment. But because this is going on for such a long period of time, we could basically go down so many rabbit holes, which are, are really not the point of this. You know, we're not here to know what the what the voices of personal family members amongst the civil service or even ministers were saying. We're here to know exactly what decisions were made, when they were made, how they affected our lives, and the knock-on consequences of lockdowns. And I, I think the fundamental issue here is how long this inquiry is going to be. It should not be years. It should be months. And we should get to the heart of what people really want to know. Um, and, and that is not the personal details of, of strangers' lives. That is why decisions were made. That ushered in one of the biggest, frankly, authoritarian kinds of measures that that, that we've seen certainly in our lifetimes. And, and those are the details people want. Um, and unfortunately, it's going to take years to get them. And of course, if you do want that gotcha moment, you know, because it's going to take years to report, you know, by that point, maybe the case that, say, Rishi Sunak or Oliver Dowden, who are many live political actors there are now, may well have gone because of this need for kind of that thoroughness I over mean, speed. You could argue he is already gone. Boris Johnson was prime minister. Yeah. The buck stopped with him. And he is already gone. Um, it's not to say Rishi Sunak and Oliver yeah. Dowden and lots of other people currently in government didn't play a role. They played a very important one. Um, but already we're moving through successive governments and the people in charge during lockdown aren't there anymore. Um, I think all of this speaks to the need to do this quickly and it's so unfortunate that that's not going yeah. to happen. And Rishi Sunak today come out and said in Washington that uh, he's not concerned by any messages and you know our colleague Fraser Nelson has gone through and seen all the messages from the Telegraph WhatsApp files and thus far there wasn't anything in there but as Katie says there may well be something else. But something definitely concerning Rishi Sunak will be these new OECD forecast figures out today showing just 0.3% growth for 2023 for the UK. Kate, talk us through those figures. It's interesting because we've had so many forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility, for the IMF. These keep getting revised and there's been, you know, huge debate in the media as to, you know, what's a good outcome, what's a bad outcome. The truth is all these forecasts have mostly been in the margin of error and have really not been terribly far apart from each other. Um, And now we are getting a a growing consensus here. The IMF have updated their forecast. Um, The OECD publishes a new one today in their economic outlook that the UK will see very marginal growth this year. The OECD is estimating about 0.3% in 2023. This is nothing to brag about, but the important thing is that it avoids a technical recession. That is good news, absolutely, but we're still looking at pretty minimal growth at a time where ideally, post-COVID, we'd be booming. That was the hope, right? You'd have this this massive economic boom and, and um, for many for many reasons that we haven't seen that. The really worrying thing in the OECD report is that it estimates that the UK will have some of the highest inflation amongst advanced economies this year, averaging close to 7%. We're already seeing in the data how difficult it is to bring that headline inflation rate down. We are at 
8.7% on the year in April, but core inflation, which excludes energy and food, really volatile things, it actually rose to, I think, 6.8% on the year, so close to that 7% figure. It's proving really difficult. The UK is struggling from Europe's energy crisis, but also from the US's labor shortage. We're basically dealing with all the problems in one country. And it's that labor shortage in particular that the OECD highlights. And this is a really tough one for the government because they're trying to bring in these reforms around childcare, around welfare to get more people back into work. That's going to take years to accomplish. Then on the flip side, for you know major political reasons, they're struggling with this headline immigrate, net immigration figure being as high as it is. So they're not going to import more foreign workers. And the truth is, we're probably set for years of a really tight labor market. We have over a million job vacancies. That number is coming down very, very slowly. Uh, and so long as that remains the case, we're going to see more inflation in services. It's really hard at the moment to see how Rishi Sunak's going to make good on that promise to have inflation this year. And talking about those five pledges, Katie, another one that's been in the news today is the pledge to stop the boats. Talk us about that. Yes, it's a strange thing in the sense that when you looked at those five priorities, I think people always thought, including myself, small boats was the hardest in terms of stop the boats. It's still a very ambitious phrase. Um, But you had the event on Monday, obviously trying to show progress. And then there's a story on the front of the sun today, which is saying the first flight could take place by September. Now, this is something I wrote about last month uh, when I went out the various scenarios. So it's definitely the case that in the Home Office, I think a best case scenario, as I wrote then, was September. Um, now that rests on quite a few things though so we have had many uh, false dawns Mm. I think it's fair to say in terms of when the first flight to Rwanda might go I think it's particularly important for the government in the sense that it feels as though January is very tricky for Rishi Sunak the Windsor framework reset the political mood that was a time of fifth term for Rishi Sunak there could be a way and now it does feel so it's fizzled out a bit as we talked about not that everyone has given up, but you, I think definitely walking around the Commons this week particularly, you know, it's the first week back from recess. It's one-line whips. It feels like tumbleweed, you know, the week before summer recess, as opposed to, you know, a government that's really charged doing lots of things. That's partly because so much legislation is in the Lords, but it's, it's still quite noticeable. And therefore, if the government were to be able to get a flight off the ground to Rwanda, I, I do think it's the type of thing that would uh, really re-energise them. Mm-hmm. and and actually refocus MPs. We are expecting in the next few weeks a uh, result of the Court of Appeal. Um, now, of course, the government, originally it's found that the scheme was lawful. It was then appealed to the Court of Appeal. Now, if the Court of Appeal finds in the government's favour, campaigners will probably try and take that to the UK Supreme Court. But there is a chance they could refuse that, saying, well, there's now been two cases... Right, okay. we, we don't think that there's, it's actually merit to go into the Supreme Court. And it's that instance, even about the illegal migration bill, you could end up with a situation whereby you'll start getting flights off the ground. You need the illegal migration bill to become law so you can start doing it en masse in a serious number, really, but it wouldn't prevent you getting some flights going. If, of course, it does go to the Supreme Court, it's going to take longer, um, and that's very possible. If the Supreme Court were to strike it down, I think there's um, what some have described as the banter scenario. And this is when you would have a situation where which uh, we often obviously hear Tory MPs saying how much they hate the ECHR. But if the Supreme Court were to strike down and say it was not lawful, it was not viable, you could see the Tories. And this is one uh, ministers have discussed is actually going to the ECHR to appeal 
the Supreme Court. So there's lots of options out there. But I think the point is, if everything failed, that's when you'll start to see some serious pressure for Rishi Sunak to put a referendum on the ECHR and Tory manifesto. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. And today's episode was brought to you by Lloyds Banking Group.